Constantinople, the city of the world's desire, the largest city in Christendom for nearly a thousand years. Surprisingly, few remember this grand city, capital of two of history's greatest empires, the Christian Roman Empire and the Islamic Ottoman Empire. This is the story of Constantinople's fall, how Europe's richest city fell to the Turks and became known as Istanbul, the story of the Great Siege of 1453. When history's greatest fortification was stormed and Europe's largest cathedral was transformed into a mosque, the empire formed by Romulus and Remus on the Seven Hills had finally come to an end. Europe shuddered. It had done nothing to help the ancient city. Now it would suffer a renewed Islamic onslaught, not seen since the days of the great caliphs. The shockwaves caused by the fall of the city of Constantinople would echo through history, changing world history forever. But first, a bit about the city itself. Situated on the western side of the Bosphorus Strait, the point where Europe and Asia meet, this ancient city straddled the key economic and strategic position between east and west. Separating the Black Sea from the Mediterranean, Constantinople was also crucially located across the north-south axis. As Napoleon Bonaparte famously remarked, if the earth were a single state, Istanbul would be its capital. All things considered, there are few better places on earth suited for a centre of power. This was no mistake, founded by Greeks around 650 BC, the fortunes of this region were to change forever under the rule of Rome. That's because, in 330 AD, Emperor Constantine made the city his new capital. He named it Nova Roma, or New Rome, demonstrating his aspirations for the place. The name didn't catch on, with residents and foreigners alike naming it, after the founder himself, Constantinople. It was from Constantinople, where the late Roman Empire was ruled. The city of Rome remains important in the West, but Constantinople was the true centre of political, economic and religious power in the empire. As barbarian peoples moved into the empire in the 5th and 6th centuries, sacking settlements as they went, the western half waned and crumbled. The east stood strong, and strong it would remain for centuries still. Constantinople stood unsurpassed behind her massive walls, as other kingdoms rose and fell and what walls they were, when the various North German barbarians, the Anglo-Saxons, invaded Roman Britain, they were in awe of the Roman fortifications they found there. So amazed they were, that many thought giants or gods must have built such structures. While the walls of Constantinople dwarfed any such walls found in Britain, and were perhaps the most massive in any part of the world, known as the Theodosian Walls, after the man who had built them, Emperor Theodosius II. This double line of walls was one of the world's most complex and defensible structures. The inner wall was five to six meters thick and 12 meters high, 
A two metre thick outer wall created a nine metre high battlement in front of it, itself encircled by a moat ten metres deep. This incredible fortification system stretched right around the city's western limits. Studded along its length were 96 towers, reaching up to 20 metres in height, and nine great gates piercing both the inner and outer wall. To all who saw them, the Theodosian walls were awe-inspiring, a wonder of the world unmatched in size and scale. More than this, they were virtually impenetrable, Many had tried to breach the city walls and get at the riches within, and almost all had been thwarted. Sieges from the Goths in 378, the Persians in 626, the Arabs, the Bulgarians, the Rus, all failed time after time. Across history, few fortifications have proven so successful so often. And successful they had to be, for within these walls lay the jewel of the Roman Empire, a city of breathtaking wealth. With Constantine pouring money into his new Rome, the population would explode, going from around 30 or 50,000 in 300 AD to at least 300,000 by 400 AD. In fact, Constantinople was, by some estimates, the world's largest city for hundreds of years and remained one of its most populated for centuries after. The city heaved with the movement of people crowding its busy marketplaces where goods from across the world could be found. Its great harbour saw ships laden with eastern spices, Chinese silks, northern amber and southern ivory, fighting for space across its busy waterways. If it was worth owning, it could be found in Constantinople, somewhere amidst the heaving markets and stores crammed into the bustling global centre that was this magnificent city. But there was space for grandeur within the crowded alleys and streets of this metropolis. Grand buildings as massive and magnificent as Rome's greatest sprung up from the streets dominating the cityscape. The mighty Hippodrome, the U-shaped arena used for chariot racing, was capable of seating 100,000 onlookers, twice that of the Colosseum in Rome. The great palace adjacent to the Hippodrome sprawled across the city, home to the emperor and the court. Its splendour was unmatched for hundreds of miles in any direction. The religious centre of the city was the Hagia Sophia, constructed by Emperor Justinian in 537 AD, the largest building in the world when finished. The Hagia Sophia towered above the city. This engineering marvel was crowned with the largest dome seen until the completion of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome almost a thousand years later. In fact, the Hagia Sophia would remain the largest cathedral in the world for the next 1,000 years, a gold-clad symbol of the power and authority of the church. The East, not the West, was the inheritor of the splendour and power of Rome, and Constantinople was the living embodiment of that, written in stone. But this fact is often forgotten, and not without reason. By 1400, Constantinople and the empire it ruled were both shadows of their former glory. Centuries of invasions from hardened barbarians to the north and vibrant Islamic empires from the east had gradually chipped away the empire ruled from the city. Crisis after crisis characterised the political life of the emperors. Despite the historical legacy of this civilization, 
rulers seemed more interested in enriching themselves rather than rebuilding their kingdom. This earned them, and their kingdom, the scorn of many a historian and thinker. Voltaire said of their history, This unworthy collection contains only declamations and miracles. It is the disgrace of the human mind. Montesquieu, another French thinker, said of the place, The Greek Empire is nothing more than a tissue of revolts, seditions, and perfidies. Edward Gibbon, famed Roman historian, wrote of Constantinople's history, describing it as a succession of priests or courtiers, reading in each other's footsteps, in the same path of servitude and superstition. Their views are narrow, their judgment is feeble or corrupt. Such scorn is, for the most part, unfair. The reasons for the decline of the Roman Empire in the East, as in the West, are not straightforward. One fact that was clear, however, was the one occasion when the Theodosian walls did fail this mighty city. In 1204, Constantinople itself was sacked, her churches looted, and her homes set ablaze. This was not at the hands of some mighty Islamic host, however, nor of warriors from the north. Instead, the attack came from Western Christian forces, participants in the shameful Fourth Crusade, who sacked the largest city in Christendom the city were they sworn to protect. The mighty walls had brought low all those who had tried to force their way through. They proved impotent when faced with the avarice of men arriving, not as invaders, but invited in as friends. In the aftermath, the authority of the emperors of Constantinople hardly extended beyond the city walls. Things were to go from bad to worse, for Sultan Mehmed II, leader of the fearsome Ottoman Turks, was coming and he desired this ancient centre of Christianity, seat of the emperors of Rome, to be the capital of his new empire, the jewel in his crown. The stage was set for Constantinople's last great siege. Mehmed II, Ottoman Sultan, dreamed of storming the mighty walls of Constantinople since he was a boy. He had been disappointed time after time by the refusal of advisers. But in 1453, as a handsome 20-year-old, now in charge of an entire empire, his dream were to become a reality. The preparations were extensive. The cities of Thrace and the Black Sea coast had been ravaged to prevent them from assisting the defenders. A massive fleet of galleys and transport ships were assembled at Gallipoli, ready to cut off the city from the sea. A castle was built at the narrowest point of the Bosphorus, Rumeli Heiser. A massive cannon, the Basilica, 26 feet long and capable of hurling stones weighing over 600 kilograms, was constructed by the Sultan's Hungarian engineer. This mighty piece of artillery was so large that it took a team of 60 oxen to pull it from where it was built, Adrianople, to the site of the future siege. Finally, a mighty host of some 80,000 men was assembled from all across the Ottomans, already extensive empire. The defenders themselves had not been idle, however. Funds had been raised to pay for troops and weapons had been collected. Outside the city, ditches in front of the walls were deepened and the moat by the Blachne Gate, one of the city's most fortified, was flooded. Embassies were sent to all who might help, Venice, the Vatican, Aragon and France. When a company of 700 men arrived under the Genoese captain, Giovanni Gustiniani Longo, he was given command of the walls. 
and with that, 7,000 men in arms prepared to defend against 80,000. Though they were to fight against incredible odds, they did so with the help of those mighty Theodosian walls, the strongest fortifications Europe had ever seen. As history taught them, sieges were something that the city of Constantinople won. They could not lose. The siege began on the 2nd of April 1453 on Easter Monday, as the first of the Turkish troops marched into view of the massive Theodosian walls, a percussion of migrating storks flew across the Bosphorus. Turks outside the walls of Constantinople impaled and crucified Christians in view of the city's massive walls, hoping to induce panic. Each side was ready for a long siege, prepared to give no quarter, and on the first day, the cannons of the Ottomans spoke. With a great roar that shook the very ground it was supported on, Orban's great cannon, the Basilica, fired upon the walls. Complementing this great gun were 70 other artillery pieces from the Sultan's foundry that together fired every seven minutes from sunrise until sunset. The outer sections of the wall, in places, were reduced to rubble. Impressive as the fortifications of the city were, they had not been built to withstand cannons. During the night, however, defenders were able to fill in the gaps made by the cannons. The walls would hold. On the 12th of April, the Ottoman assault failed. On the 20th, an imperial flotilla fought its way through the Ottoman fleet, making its way into the harbour. Although only four ships strong, it brought much-needed men and supplies. The defenders were encouraged, the besiegers demoralised, Victory for the Sultan seemed far off. Something had to change. The Ottomans had failed to take the city in another siege back in 1422, and the men had started to mutter, the walls have never been taken by force, the city will never fall. Mohammed was feeling the pressure. In a master stroke, the Sultan ordered his fleet of galleys to be dragged overland just north of the city, into the Golden Horn. He had a road of greased logs constructed, and on the 22nd, the massive Ottoman fleet was rolled across it and into the harbour, where once it had been protected by massive sea walls and a great chain, the harbour of Constantinople was now in Ottoman hands. This was a massive tactical blow to the defenders. Desperate, they tried everything to force the attackers out. On the night of the 28th of April, the defenders launched fire ships, boats filled with combustibles and gunpowder aimed at the Ottoman fleet. If they could drive the Turks out of the harbour, the siege could be won. Bitter fighting took place, both sides engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat. But as sun rose, the Christians had been driven off, taking heavy losses. That morning, the weary troops in the city looked across the water to see their comrades who had been captured lined up. They were then, one by one, impaled on stakes, their cries echoing out for all to hear. Not to be outdone, the Christian forces then executed the 200 men they had captured. The siege, already ugly, was getting more brutal by the day. With the harbour secured, the Ottomans began their gruelling assaults. They came day after day to full frontal engagements. Each time they were driven off with heavy losses, but each time they got a little further. The Christian forces were becoming gradually more exhausted and fewer in numbers. Many started to think the defence of the city was doomed to fail. 
that Gluminus is captured by one account of the siege, written by a Venetian surgeon in his diary. I found the Turks coming right up under the walls and seeking battle, particularly the Janissaries. And when one or two of them were killed at once, Morturs came and took away by that once, without caring how near they came to the city walls. Our men shot at them with guns and crossbow, aiming at the Turks who was carrying away his dead countrymen, and both of them were fall to the ground dead. And then there came out the Turks and took them away, known fearing death, but being willing to let ten of themselves be killed rather than suffer the shame of leaving a single Turkish corpse by the walls. The Ottomans then started trying to break through the walls using mines, rather than just storming them. A force of Serbians experiencing this type of warfare led the effort. They would dig underground, forming large tunnels snaking towards the walls. Upon reaching the foundations, gunpowder would be placed and ignited, collapsing the defences irreparably. A German engineer, one who had come with the 700-strong Genese force, led a highly successful counter-mining operation. He directed the digging of mines to meet the Ottoman tunnels, allowing the defenders to kill the Ottoman forces and collapse their mines. When they captured two Turkish officers in one such subterranean skirmish on May the 23rd, they tortured them mercilessly, eventually forcing them to reveal the locations of all other mines. There would be no further attempts to plant mines under the walls after this incident. On the 21st of May, Mehmed sent an ambassador to the besieged city with a message. Give over Constantinople and be allowed to leave with your possessions. Be your citizen or emperor. The emperor refused, offering tribute but no surrender. He declared, As to surrendering the city to you, it is not for me to decide or for anyone else of its citizens. For all of us have reached the mutual decision to die of our own free will without any regard for our lives. Mohammed II was at tipping point. The siege had gone on for 49 days. Losses were high, supplies were low, and some of the Sultan's key advisors were now openly calling him to end the siege. Victory seemed a distant possibility. During a council, it was decided that the Ottomans would launch one last, all-out offensive against the city. The risks were high. A failed assault might break the Ottomans' already wavering morale. But Mohammed had dreamt of this moment all his life. The walls would be stormed, or the mighty army he led would be broken trying. On the evening of May 26, the preparations began. For the next 36 hours, the massive 80,000 strong host of men were mobilized and readied for the grand assault. They were given time on the 28th to rest, pray, and to make peace with their morality. Sensing the change in mood and anticipating the carnage that was to come, the troops in Constantinople held a solemn ceremony in Hagia Sophia, the largest church in Christendom, with the emperor himself attending. They too made peace with their god and committed themselves to whatever fate the next day had in store. And on that night of the 28th, a somber calm fell across both sides. The air was hot and humid, charged with the prayers of tens of thousands. The die had been cast, the city might fall, but it would not do so in surrender and disgrace. The Christians would fight to the end. And so it was that, 
just after midnight on the 29th of May, the 53rd day of the siege, the final all-out offensive began. Wave after wave of Ottoman troops surged towards the walls. First came the Bashibazuga regulars, then the Anatolians, then the Janissaries. They marched at the double, keeping perfect order in their ranks, unbroken even by the missile fire from the walls. The Janissaries marched on to their martial music, a cacophony of drums and instruments, loud enough to be heard between the roar of the guns, even from the other side of the Bosphorus. Sultan Mehmet himself stood shouting encouragement from a fosse near the fort. Wave after wave broke into the walls, erecting ladders and attacking the defenders. They fought desperately through the night. The defenders on the walls repulsed wave after wave of brave Turkish soldiers, but each time they became ever more tired and fewer in number. By the time the Janissary troops, the Sultan's finest committed to the assault, many defenders were already exhausted. Still, they fought on in brutal close-quarters combat. Just before sunrise, disaster struck the defenders. The Genoese leader of those on the walls took a culverin shot to his breastplate and retired, covered in blood. Dispirited at the retreat of their leader, the defenders of Constantinople fought on, battling the elite Turkish troops for control of the walls. A giant janissary called Hassa, fighting through a wall of men and steel, succeeded in mounting the stockade. He briefly raised the flag before being cut down. Still, he showed it was possible. The Turks were encouraged, fighting harder still. Soon the outnumbered men on the walls were swamped. The section of the wall was taken and the Ottoman flag was raised. And with that, the battle came to an end. With the raising of Turkish flags over one key section of the wall, the stiff defense faltered then collapsed. The men who had fought so hard to defend their city knew they had failed and soon the violent host they had resisted would be pouring into the city. Some fled, seeking refuge with their loved ones in the narrow confines of their city. Others surrendered, dooming themselves to a life in slavery. Some threw themselves off the walls in desperation, ending their lives rather than witness what was to come. It is said that Constantine, throwing aside his purple regalia, led the final charge against the incoming Ottomans perishing in the ensuing battle in the streets alongside his soldiers. On the other hand, the Venetian surgeon quoted earlier wrote in his diary that Constantine hanged himself at the moment when the Turks broke in at the San Romano gate. Ultimately his fate remains unknown. Constantinople had fallen. Then the carnage began. The city had refused the Sultan's mercy. The men had then risked their lives taking the place, many paying the ultimate price. Now, the citizens of Constantinople would pay for that resistance. You'll remember how the emperor had replied to the sultan's messenger, saying how his people had reached the mutual decision to die of our own free will, without any regard for our lives. Well, here that claim would be tested. The city was sacked. Ottoman troops moved through the precincts, district by district, looting and raping as they did so. More interested in selling off the citizens as slaves, most of the populace was spared from absolute butchery. Still, accounts state that blood flowed in the city like rainwater in a gutter, and that bodies floated in the sea like melons along a canal. 
Much of the city was set aflame, as men moved through it, section by section, taking everything viable they could find. Hagia Sophia, Christianity's largest church, was the natural refuge for many thousands who piled into its vast chambers. Many were desperately praying for divine intervention. It would not come. The Turks descended upon the cathedral, grabbing those inside and sorting them according to the price they would fetch at slave markets. The Hagia Sophia was then turned into a mosque. While battles still raged and Turkish troops pillaged the city, a priest climbed the massive building's turret. From that position, he called out in Arabic, inviting all to prayer, officially beginning an Islamic service. Inside the huge building, another holy man performed the namaz of thanksgiving on the greater altar, where for hundreds of years, Christian mysteries had been performed before the Caesars. God was great, yes, but so too was the Sultan. Day moved into night, and the residents of the city cowered and wept whilst the victorious conquerors feasted and mourned their dead. Entire districts of the city were deserted, homes were stripped, churches desecrated, and people deported. Surveying the carnage, Mehmed was brought to tears. What a city we have given over to plunder and destruction. Only on the third day following the siege did he order an end to the lawlessness. The siege was over, the defenders were dead, fleeing, or sold into slavery. The attackers were victorious. Mohammed II had earned himself the title, the Conqueror, and with that, the Roman Empire had ceased to exist. The consequences are huge. The Christian world had lost its largest and one of its oldest centers of learning and power. The rule of the emperors of Rome had finally come to an end and the Ottomans had gained a new, strategically located capital. Where once the mighty of the Turks and the forces of Islam had been a threat only to the Orthodox Christians in the East. From that point on, they would push through the Balkans, right up to the gates of Vienna itself, capital of the Holy Roman Emperor. The Pope lamented the second death of Homer and Plato and called for another crusade. Unsurprisingly, for a Europe that had sent a mere 700 men to aid the siege, his calls were ignored. Surprisingly, Europe was almost hysteric following the news. So few had helped defend the city, and those who had such little forces, yet their panicked reaction spoke to new fears, perhaps even regret. Church bells rang out across Europe, echoing across the Hungarian plain and the market squares of Italy, right up to the rural pastures of England. Many were right to panic. The city of Constantinople and the empire it ruled had long provided a buffer for Ottoman expansion. Now with the fall of that great city, the path to future expansion westwards was open. First Constantinople, next the world. But all was not lost. The Ottomans proved less chaotic in peace than they were in war. They were liberal in trade with links between East and West actually flourishing under their rule much to the benefit of the Venetian and Genoese middlemen. They were tolerant in religion, providing a safer place for Christians to live in relative justice. Certainly, the Christians living under the Ottomans fared far better than the Muslims or Jews caught in Spanish rule. The city was repopulated with people from across the Ottoman Empire, Christian and Islamic, Turks, Greeks, Serbians and Bulgarians all found a home in the city that took on a new, distinctly multicultural character. Finally, the sultans proved worthy. 
if unconventional heirs to the legacy of the emperors of Rome. Mohammed II proclaimed himself Caesar Irum, Caesar of Rome, following the fall of Constantinople in 1453, styling himself as a continuation of existing Roman rule. The empire had switched religion once from pagan to Christian beliefs, why not twice? He commissioned Roman-style portraits of himself and adopted many aspects of the culture of Constantinople. It's no coincidence that the Hagia Sophia, the vast cathedral turned mosque, looks like many mosques built following 1453. The architectural style was adapted. Fleeing scholars from the religion brought the learning of the ancients to the shores of Italy, kick-starting the study of classical texts in Western Europe. Many consider this factor as a key factor in causing the Renaissance, that flowering of culture that traditionally marks the end of the Dark Age in European history. If ancient Constantinople was burned in the Great Siege of 1453, then the scattering of its ashes in the wind proved fertile across the medieval world. Those who stayed in the city too remained influential. They continued to receive patronage, translating their works into Arabic and contributing to a flowering Islamic culture in arts and science that for some time surpassed that found in the West. The center of Orthodox Christianity shifted from Constantinople to Moscow. Henceforth, it was the Russians who would carry the faith. The center of Islam too shifted. The East with the holy sites in Jerusalem and the Middle East would be secured for 500 years. Despite the bishop in Rome, the last surviving ancient sea no crusader would again threaten that region. The West, home to the great caliphs in Spain, would fall victim to the Iberians, who would take to the seas and spread the faith to every corner of the earth. As such, the impact of the siege of Constantinople, the fall of the Roman Empire, is not straightforward. Tragedy or triumph, your view depends on what perspective you approach it from. What cannot be debated though, is the drama of the Great Siege of 1453, the fall of Constantinople, the determined heroism of both attackers and defenders, Islamic and Christian forces alike, resonate throughout history in what may be one of history's greatest sieges.